Good evening and welcome to Law Focus. It has just gone six minutes after seven this evening. My name is Melissa Tindiweni and I am with Tepo Mohapi and we are broadcasting live from VOFM 88.1. Tonight we enjoy our second profile interview for the year where we have in studio a young and dynamic attorney whose journey and experiences to where she is right now are absolutely important and should never be downplayed. Being black, female, and under the age of 30, owning your own law firm in any part of the world, more so in ours, is quite a big deal. And I cannot stress this more. Given our history, we celebrate every single milestone, not only because you managed to overcome all the challenges and becoming one of the exceptions, but also because it encourages others to not give up on their visions despite the odds. It would be amazing to live in a South Africa where as a black person, as a woman, as a black woman, and many other previously historically disadvantaged, you do not have to work thrice as hard to be recognized where your efforts, even if it was as minimal as that of a privileged white man, it can be regarded as equal. For your success as the previously marginalized to not be seen as an exception, but rather as a norm. I remember that we have a good understanding, I hope, at this show of profile interviews generally and of those of young women in particular. Now, we're very happy to have this young attorney with us, certainly an intelligent lady, who's joining us in studio She's going to tell us about how she's going. She's path carved her path, because every story is important and worth being told. Now, what we want to do is inspire you, to encourage you, and to rejuvenate perhaps your journey in the legal profession. Now, to tell us about this is Miss Jocelyn Fember of Jocelyn Fember Attorneys, and to have your say with any questions, thoughts or any kind of discussion that's relevant today, you can interact with us on social media at VowFM using, or on Twitter at VowFM using the hashtag LawFocus. On Facebook, we're VowFM. And of course, the landline is 011717-9881. We always look forward to hearing from you. Whichever way you like to do it, tweet us, you can call us. Uh, either way, we like to hear from you. And for any reason you have to disappear, but you really want to hear this conversation, and I think you will, uh, check out our podcast at vits.journalism.co.za forward slash law or the Vits Radio Academy page on IONO. And as well as our previous shows will be on there. Yes, Tapo. But for now, before we get into the main part of the event this evening, we are first going to start off with the hottest stories of the week, where we are going to let you know, you know, of the major legal stories that have been unfolding since um, a week ago when we were last here. Here are our legal hotspots. Rounding up all, all the top stories of the week, it's Legal Hotspots. What's uh, your hottest legal stories of the week? Uh, we go over to Cape Town, where we're having the situation with um, refugees at the Green Market Square. Now, to give you a little bit of background, in October last year, or 2018, I think it was, hundreds of refugees began protesting outside 
of the United Nations Commissioner for Refugees in St. George's Mall. Now, what they wanted to be, uh, one, what they wanted to happen was to be resettled in a, in a different country other than South Africa, and this was because of xenophobic violence which had occurred in the weeks prior to that. They took refuge in the Methodist Church that is on Green Market Square, but too many people were there to be accommodated in that um, uh, church and people began to live on the street outside the church. This affected the bylaws and after a very, very long and emotional legal battle, the, the Cape Town High Court granted uh, the city the right to start moving against them, that is to evict them, particularly from the streets surrounding uh, Green Market Square and the church itself. Of course, many opinions are divided on this and people feel very strongly given the approach of the um, refugees themselves as well as the um, um, the demands that have been made and the city's approach to it as well. It's been running for a long time but eventually the court has decided that they should go and they are now going to be evicted. Of course, I don't think it's going to be the end of the story. We'll watch it closely because I think there'll be more litigation on this question. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a difficult one to call, I think. Uh, you, you, you feel sympathetic. Certainly I do. In my time as a human rights attorney, I was very sympathetic towards these things. I'll be honest with you and say at the moment my sympathy is wearing thin. Why? Um, given the, uh, the, um, the, the, the whole approach of this thing, I believe that one of the, uh, the commissioners of the Human Rights Commission even walked away from the matter, given that he was scared for his own safety um, at the hands of some of the leaders there. So my, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit torn about this one. But nevertheless, the court has spoken and they are going. Uh, let's hope that things get better and that the xenophobic attacks against them stop. Okay, yeah, I know. And we are moving on to another story that's also about human rights and has to do with this time um, immigrants living in South Africa. We have a very interesting, I think it was a landmark judgment by the Concord last week where they have basically ruled that children born in South Africa to foreign parents can now apply for citizenship and I think this is very interesting because before you would know that you weren't able to easily apply for citizenship unless you were a permanent residence or one of your parents was obviously um, South African but this is now going to change the highest courts of the land said that some immigrants only know South Africa as home nothing else and based on the principle of naturalization they should be allowed to apply for citizenship upon turning 18, irrespective of when they were born. So basically, what this means is that um, the judgment will apply retrospectively. So if you were born 30 years ago and your parents are not from South Africa, but you were born in South Africa, you can actually make use of this ruling. I think that's very um, important. It's quite big. The Department of Home Affairs opposed the matter, stating that this judgment should only apply to children born after 2013, and that's because 2013 is when this matter was taken to court. But the Concord said, uh-uh, anyone who finds themselves in this situation can apply, despite when you were born. And the case stems from children being born to foreign parents who were turned away uh, by the Department of Home Affairs, and they were told by the department that no applications for naturalizations um, are being considered at all all and while the department will have now 10 days to deal with this matter um and if they don't do so then further action will be taken against them 
yeah, that's what happens. So in effect, we now have an unlimited number of potential South African citizens. Is Ish, that what we have? It's tough because there were children. I, I can't remember what the term is, but children without um, an identity where, you know, no country recognizes you. Um, so you, you don't have any birth certificate. That's legit. You can't get an identity, uh, any ID from anywhere. It, it was a difficult I mean, surely if your parents were displaced from, say, Congo, yeah. and you were born in South Africa... You're Congolese. You're just born in South Africa. I mean, that's not a that's question of citizenship. That's going to change now, Tepo. <laughs> it's not a question of citizenship. Why are you forcing people to be Congolese when they want to be South African? Well, I'm not saying. I'm just saying that, hang on, we now have potentially an unlimited number of instant South African citizens. It's going to be an interesting one, uh, given, you know, the xenophobic attacks in our country, the, you know, arguments about resources, unemployment, and, and, and I don't know how I understand that the department didn't file papers as well correctly, and so one has to wonder what happened there mm. and what effect that might have had on the ruling. Anyway, it is what it is. Um, so we have that now. Anybody who's born here, doesn't matter where they're from, their parents are from, can now apply for South African citizenship upon turning 18. All right, now, the criticism of parole. Uh, following the murder of Tasnia van Veik, parole has become a real hot topic in the country. Um, Tasnia van Veik was kidnapped and murdered. Uh, Mohaidin Pagana, Panga... Yeah, it's a difficult name. Yeah, no, man. Uh, Panga Ka, sorry if I'm butchering that surname. Yeah. And he was a known sex offender. He'd been released on parole for a similar crime. He'd served a fairly lengthy sentence and had been released on parole. Now, South Africans are pretty distraught about it and unhappy about the current parole system. Activists are questioning whether parolees undergo any psychological assessment to determine whether they are re- rehabilitated or not before they are actually given parole. One of the arguments is that it seems that many uh, prisoners are given parole based on the conditions in in prisons themselves rather than good behavior. So overcrowding and, and so on is contributing towards the decision to grant parole rather than the circumstances mm. of the individual parolee. Um, in recent state, in the recent State of the Nation address, President Cyril Ramaphosa said that uh, he, they wanted to amend the Domestic Violence Act to better protect victims in, victim, in uh, violent uh, domestic uh, relationships and to broaden the Sexual Offences Act uh, to categorize sexual offenders whose names must be included in the National Register for Sex Offenders. Um, and it will uh, certainly assist in the parole system as well in the granting of bail in cases that involve gender-based violence. Uh, now, we see that gender-based violence are still major issues in the country, and we'll see how it goes, particularly in recent times when gender-based violence has been used sort of as a ping-pong, even in the highest forum in the country yeah. where, you know, it was now used as a mudslinging thing. But uh, people are dying, uh, not people, women and children are dying at the hands of men in this country. And I can tell you, in my experience, that the parole system is one of our most flawed systems. It really is. It does not really take person into consideration. What they've done and how much they've changed. You get parolees who are essentially reformed, but their, their, their crime is perhaps political, and they may never be released, you know, or they have very difficult time to be released. And you get others who've committed really serious offences, but there's not really a political thing or, or anything like that, and it's not a, a prominent crime. And they tend to, just after serving X amount of time, uh, get parole without really having been reformed. 
Uh, and I don't think that it's a real judgment call. It's sort of a, a numbers thing, you know. We've got too many. Let's get rid of some of them. Look, he's done two-thirds of his sentence. Let him go. Yeah. Kind of thing. So we really need to look at that. If it means more prisons. If it means more prisons, yeah. If, yeah. It, if it means more. But, I mean, it, it, we, ha- we also have to question why the prisons are overcrowded. In South Africa, you can get, you can do time for shoplifting. First offense, you can do, okay, you'll do 30 days or whatever, but you can do time. Why are you doing time for shoplifting? Yeah, but you, why are you not being rehabilitated? You yeah, know well, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so we got to really think why it is that our prisons, A, are overcrowded, and then how we relieve that problem. Because to release the worst of the worst uh, seems to not be working. Hmm. All right. 20 after 7, yeah? 20 after 7 right now. We're going to move on. We're about to enter into our interview with um, the attorney from J. Fember Attorneys, Jocelyn Fember. You want to stay tuned for this one. Law Focus, handing you your rights. Okay, welcome back to Law Focus with Millicent and Tepo Mohapi. Okay, so we have in studio Justin Fember. Uh, We introduced her earlier on as a young and dynamic uh, career-filled black woman um, who has done amazing things with her career since a young age to be quite honest and it's going to be interesting to hear her story uh, from where she started from uh, to where she is right now and even beyond um, where she is uh, in the year 2020. Welcome to Law Focus, Jocelyn. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you. Good evening, Millicent. Um, good evening, Teppo, and also good evening to all of your listeners. All right. Um, I hope that the discussion that we have today will bear some insight and that your listeners will be able to take something tangible from the conversation that we have today. From that introduction, I think they will. Um, let's, let's start with, with your own experience, uh, your journey, becoming a lawyer. Where did that stem from? Well, on the surface, to be honest, my entire journey to becoming a lawyer took a relatively short time, mm. if you look at it from the outside. Um, for me, though, uh, it was a lifetime in the making. Uh, When we're young, people ask us what we want to be when we grow up. For me, both the question and the answer were often put to me in very quick succession. Um, The question is, what do you want to be when you grow up, Jocelyn? Then without missing a beat, I would always get, you should be a lawyer. You'd make a great lawyer. Um, Around the age of, I'd say, eight or nine years old, I really began to internalize that word, lawyer, attorney, legal professional. And I began to ask questions like, what was it? Um, What do lawyers do? Could girls become lawyers? What did they wear? Um, I'd ask my parents, my teachers, my friends. And then when I got old enough, I began to read about the legal profession. And ultimately, I decided that besides becoming an actress and a writer, I wanted to become a lawyer. Mm. Soon enough... um, the lawyer and the legal profession as a whole um, pushed the other professions aside and took center stage. I then became single-minded about what I wanted to be when I grew up, and for me, the law was the only option. That's that's interesting. And and based on the answer that you have just given us, first of all, what then uh, makes a good lawyer? Because when people say, oh, you should be a lawyer, you, it's like, okay, what makes a good lawyer that makes people see this in me, you know? Um, so so how would you answer that? And then secondly, you said you would ask your parents, you know, about the legal profession, what they knew. 
growing up, did you have, did you know any lawyers or how, and, and, and if you didn't, how difficult was it then to penetrate the industry without any background information of, oh, I know Uncle Aaron is a lawyer or, you know? To answer your first question, what makes a good lawyer? I think that there are many things that make a good lawyer. And some of these things came to me um, at a very young age. Some of them came to me upon only entering um, the legal profession. And I'll take you through those lessons that I learned and then perhaps provide you with some permutations afterwards. Um, As the years passed um, in my early life, I went to primary school and to high school. I was a very diligent student, a very hard worker. Um, Often I got prizes and awards. My focus never wavered from the law and what I wanted to do. Um, When the time came, I applied to different universities, both in my province and in others to do law. And when the time, uh, sorry, at the time I wasn't so learned about what exactly the curriculum entailed. And so I applied for three things. In order of choice, the first choice was law. Um, My second was dramatic art. Mm -hmm. and (laughs) the third was medicine so I mean I I was very diversified in my interests Mm. but at the same time I would have been okay with doing either three even though I wanted to do law I I felt like I needed contingencies in place after a few weeks I was offered a place in the LLB program at WITS and I accepted it to my surprise and despite um, the financial challenges that came with being independent and at university simultaneously Mm. And even though there were many real challenges that still awaited for me along the way, um, like paying my tuition fees and finding accommodation, also balancing um, work and studies and, you know, a social life, the desire to be a lawyer and the excitement that accompanied that desire never left me. Um, It was always there waiting for me until I was ready. And that moment of readiness, I believe, came about two years into my LLB degree. Um, I'd started the interesting bits of the law degree, you know, the stuff that people get excited about when they watch um, shows like Suits and How to Get Away with Murder, you know, all of these exciting law shows. Um, My real passion for the law came about learning about criminal law and criminal justice. Um, The way that my mind responded to all the complications and intricacies of the subject intrigued me. Um, My lecturers were passionate about what they did and to see a future self personified in someone else adds to ambition so I think that's where the aspect of having something that is familiar around you to be able to see your future self in that person so uh, to answer your question I didn't necessarily have any other legal professionals around me at the point of beginning my my journey but I I got that and I think it was supplemented in the form of me having professors Mm. and having teachers who were already um, embossed in the profession Mm. um, in my uh, secondary environment. Um, Like most uh, people with A-type personalities, um, in my teens and throughout university, I made a to-do list for my life. So I tend to hoard paper and during my studies, whenever I felt discouraged or I needed to remind myself of my purpose. I always went looking for that piece of paper. So I think consistency and just constantly reminding yourself why you're doing it and, uh, you know, just just a, an awareness of what your purpose is is important as, as a trade for being a lawyer because a lot of people enter the profession or, you know, at a very, very early stage in their life, they decide that they want to be a lawyer, but there isn't really that why. And I think that is that is critical when deciding that doing the legal profession is what you want to do. Right. Now... Tell me, um, 
I'm you, you perhaps have answered this in a way but I'm going to ask it slightly differently um, in your practice you know, as you're going about your journey as an attorney yes perhaps one of the things that one finds is you can get very cynical you can get very cynical about uh, people um, because you're dealing with um, the the underbelly if I could say of humanity whether it's rough guys who are c accused of doing quite serious things or you're dealing with the nasty side of a divorce the nasty side of a family the nasty side of labor uh, matters things like this it's never the, the the pretty things you're dealing with and that can make you a bit cynical how if you're fairly sensitive like myself uh, you know quite a sensitive soul how do you deal with that sort of cynicism that inevitably creeps in for you what do you do so indeed i i agree with you that i think that in any field of um profession or in any vocation one has to deal with other human beings and a complication that arises along the way of dealing with that is that you, you have to deal with difficult people you have to deal with people who are different to you um there, there there are all sorts of different things that you have to deal with and fortunately for me i've had to do that from a very young age i entered the workforce at the age of 16. so as a result of that i've had to deal with people and all of those different intricacies so it was, it was sort of like a training program for me from a very young age um and what I realized along the way that my initial disappointments, whether it be related to general disappointments, um, detours, um, disappointments in people, or perhaps the choices that they made, all of those things that I pursued were merely preparing me for the moment when I would become an attorney and I would have to find practical ways of making those differences work. Or finding a solution despite those difficulties yeah. and also just preparing me for the moment that and this is going to sound very um, poetic but the moment when I would stand up in the High Court before the two judges who held my fate to take my oath and be added to the role of attorneys mm. um, now when I walk into a courtroom um, when I bow to the court and I proceed to the bar I'm taken aback by how the simple act um, which may be taken for granted by someone whose journey may not have been as lengthy or as convoluted as my own means such a great deal to me i know now that no experiences um, no delays no challenges or detours are ever wasted so the experience that you speak of where you have to deal with things that you wouldn't necessarily do yourself you have to deal with moral dilemmas that or moral lines that people have crossed that you wouldn't necessarily cross yourself there's somewhat of a reconciliation and your purpose is not to judge you know the goodness or the badness of that situation your purpose as an attorney is to resolve it that is so powerful yeah that is so powerful i don't even know where to start um but that's true it really is it's true. yeah it's, it is not your job to judge there's a, it's judge. there's a judge for that but then can i get up if you don't mind taking from just that last portion sure. of not judging Okay, we haven't asked you what your practice is about. Ne? We'll get there. Okay. But as a woman, if someone comes to you, you know, you heard us speaking earlier on, we spoke of parole, um, for instance, you know, where you are dealing with some people who have been hardcore criminals. 
and they have done the most heinous of crimes, especially these gender-based violence crimes that we are dealing with, where it has, you know, femicide combined with rape, you know, those horrendous crimes against women and children. And you say criminal law also really um, showed you this is me in future, you know, whether or not you practice it now. If you have someone who approaches you um, with a history of such violence, having come with such violence, and you are not in a position to judge as a lawyer, you're in a position to solve the case, how do you take it? How does that influence your principles, your strong heart, beliefs, biases, prejudices, you know, values? As a woman, how do you deal with that? So, to answer your question, I think that inherently as human beings, we all have predispositions about what is right and what is wrong. And that is based on the environment that we have either grown up in, been raised in, or found ourselves in subsequent to that. It's, It's all informed by different characteristics and different influences. But the role of an attorney in dealing with matters like criminal matters when someone comes to you and says i've been accused of committing a crime your purpose in that situation is not to find out from your client whether or not they think what they did is right or wrong or to decide that what they did is heinous or not um that's that that is a that is not your job. Your duty is to tell your client's story to the court. And in criminal law specifically, and I think that a lot of people have reservations about practicing criminal law for this reason, you know, because of the moral dilemma, because of the guilt um, that people face when, for instance, someone approaches you as a woman and says, I've been accused of the crime of rape. Mm -hmm. The question that is often asked is, how can you, as a woman, how can you represent a rapist? And people harbor negative emotions towards attorneys and advocates who practice criminal law. And I think that bias comes from the, the belief that the attorney is, is defending the wrong thing or the right thing. No, the attorney is merely interpreting the law in order to tell their client's story. And I think in a country like South Africa where there are so many instances where after a person has been convicted and sentenced, um, it comes out at a later stage that 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 person actually did not commit the crime. It's important, the role of an attorney and the role of an advocate is so important in telling a person's story to prevent instances of people, for instance, uh, having a wrongful conviction. And also, you know, the question of my own personal values and principles. If anything, I think that the answer to the question as to whether law has influenced my principles and my values lies in an analysis of the ethics and the practices of lawyers um, in the culture of attorneys. One of the classic questions asked by people who teach and write about lawyers can be, uh, is it possible to be both a good lawyer and a good person? One thing that has stood out for me in in all of my encounters with interpreting and applying the law is that there are consequences of not living a life of integrity, of honor, of simplicity, of good nature and kindness. Um, I've always aimed at being an excellent attorney and a remarkable person at the same time. Um, The law often operates as a sense, uh, a voice of sense and reason when there is conflict. Um, It's a respected middle ground where people are almost obliged to be temperate. 
Um, I believe that people become better people when they work with other people on projects of consequence and that's what we do as attorneys um, through this platform and through the privilege of having worked with so many virtuous lawyers like some of my professors at the Wurtz Law Clinic, my director during Articles of Clerkship and many of my colleagues, I'm a better person today than I was when I met all of these people um, than I was before all of my encounters in the profession okay. mm. Yes Right. I think you, let's you, take a break, Antepo, and then we can come back. Before we do, because that's a question that always comes up, and I think it's somewhat of a, of, of, of a difficult one. And I'm going to ask the listener to ask himself th this question, mm. because that's something that a lawyer has always asked, um, is to ask yourself, are you confident that the people who are currently in jail, most of them, deserve to be in jail? And I can go to sleep at night saying, yes, I believe the people, who, most of them, who are convicted, deserve to be in jail. But the only way I can be sure about that is that I know that each of them went to court, had charges pressed against them, they were asked to plead, they were given an attorney to represent them, even for free, to present their version of events. And having presented their version of events, they were found guilty. Nobody thumbsucked their conviction. So for the vast majority of people in jail, they got an opportunity to present their version of events to the court, to the public, and that version was rejected. And that makes me sleep at night. I said, but okay, he got a fair trial. All right. Anyway, let's not get too heavy. <laughs> that was just yeah. a philosophical question. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. We're talking to Miss Fember of Jocelyn Fember Attorneys. Bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Hi, welcome back to Law Focus. We're with me, Tapo and Millicent. And today our guest is Jocelyn Fember. She's from J. Fember Attorneys, and that's in Sunning Hill. Her speciality is um, uh, criminal law, commercial law, and family law as well. Uh, she's a great new attorney. Well, not new, but she has started her new, her, her, her new firm, and she is uh, working very hard in the Johannesburg area, making it a far better area for all of us. Uh, Jocelyn Fember from J. Fember Attorneys. Right. You can remember to follow us on at Twitter. Oh my word! What am I saying? At Twitter. What's at Twitter? Age remember to follow us on age, you know age sometimes. On Twitter, age. And I shaved my head. I shaved my beard to look younger. Shame it's not working. Okay, <laughs> Twitter. We are on Twitter at VowFM using the hashtag LawFocus. Remember, you can telephone us if you are that way inclined. And on zero one one seven one seven nine double eight one, we're discussing being an attorney in this country, a young female attorney in Johannesburg. The challenges the inspirations, the, cha the, uh, the problems, and some of the triumphs that you will experience. All right, Jocelyn and uh, uh, Melissa, over to you. Okay, uh, Jocelyn, let's start with uh, before we you know, move to the next phase of your life after university. When you were there, as a student, there's many challenges, of course. What, were, what were your greatest challenges as a student, and how did you overcome them? All right, so just to give, you know, just because there are so many different ways to uh, study these days. You know, you st some people study via UNISA, others do it full-time. Um, I studied at Wits University. I'm a proud Witsy. <laughs> <laughs> there were... Tux of nooks is what we say. 
so I mean there were very many challenges I faced which were quite significant like balancing work and study life um, meeting the demands of the academic pressure achieving social cohesion and aligning myself with university life culturally in general but the one thing that I'd like to draw as a, a focal point of this particular discussion is the issue of despair and depression mm. as I believe that it deserves attention as the end result of all the challenges which are common for law students um, in my own experience um, in my experience the emotional health of law students is, is a growing issue of concern yeah. um, during my years at law school there was a constant perceived hyper competitive overly mm. demanding and I'd say alienating environment um, this for me it placed the mental health of some law students including my own under severe strain uh, because of the atmosphere, I noticed that the use of anti-anxiety and antidepressant medication had become the norm among students mm. um, and that alcohol was being consumed in alarming proportions. I wasn't necessarily a big drinker. However, it was alarming how often and how much some of my peers consumed alcohol. Mm. Um, the more and more that I came across this issue and as it was brushed off as casual debauchery, in my mind, I always thought that it suggested that a wider problem required urgent attention. Yeah. I wondered uh, whether there was something about law school in particular that drives its students to mental health problems and substance abuse, and if so, how can the problem be addressed? In seeking answers to you know, the questions that I asked myself, I first looked into un the university's policies and practices on addressing mental health and substance abuse. Um, I then began a, a very personal investigation into the issue of mental health among law students specifically, um, looking at South Africa and other countries as well. Through most of the rigorous research on the subject, um, it did offer some valuable insight and also just based on my interactions with my peers and, you know, seeing what was happening at law school. Um, there was something very disturbing about my findings and it was that sizable groups of people including the groups of students I knew were experiencing problems were reluctant to seek help. Mm. Um, some of the factors that stopped them from seeking assistance included social stigma, uh, potential threat to job status because as you know law students have to be fit and proper in order yeah. to be considered eligible for admission into the profession, um, financial reasons and perhaps the idea that they could handle the problem themselves or not having the time. At South African universities particularly the question of student emotional wellness has been acknowledged and examined in some depth. Um, these studies don't focus on law specifically but Anecdotal evidence suggests that some law students may be experiencing similar pressure which require um, personal and professional support and care. So I think that, you know, as much as we can look at all of the common pressures, there's an end result. And I think that end result is the anxiety and the depression that no one knows what to do about. No one knows how to approach it. And it, it sort of, it's, it, it bridges across into the profession because you'll find that even at a professional level, mm. people have substance abuse um, yeah. Right. problems. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not well, well, well talked about, but yeah, yeah, the pressure can really get to us. Let's go to the lines quickly. We've got a caller, Koketso, who's who has a question. I'm sure it's for all of us. Um, it's on the death penalty. Let's hear what it is that Koketso has to say. Hi, Hi. Koketso. 
Hi, Jocelyn. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you? I'm fine, thanks. First of all, I'd like to say that I'm very proud of the young woman you've become. Thank you. And um, I'm very proud of the fact that you've taken a step that I couldn't take myself and start started your own law firm. Thank but, you. Uh, I know we've had this debate before, but what do you think of the recent calls of, um, you know, to bring back the death penalty, especially with regards to sexual violence and crimes against women and children? Thank you for your question, Koketo, and I think that's a very important discussion to be had, not only as a legal professional, but amongst um, people in society. It's our Mm -hmm. duty as legal professionals to rationalize the arguments and the conversations that happen in society, much like the call for the return of the death penalty. And I think that what we need to do is, as much as crimes against women and children are incredibly outrageous and and unacceptable we need to ask ourselves what our role in the you know the the, the criminal justice system as a whole is and what the law's purpose is and i think in a in, in a country like like south africa where we're a constitutional democracy and we are governed by the provisions of the constitution the right to life is 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 deeply entrenched and the public or people and the courts cannot be the judge jury and executioner the right to life is is a very sacred right and i think that it has to yes it has to be balanced against other rights but to call for the return of the death penalty would be a step backwards in our in our democracy and I think that the problem that instead needs to be addressed is perhaps our criminal justice system which begins at um, the police department you know um, I think that those functions need to be readdressed and and looked at instead of the call for the death penalty because let's say the death penalty does return our police system would still be broken um, there would still be incompetence at at that level, so it would not necessarily guarantee a conviction and guarantee that the death penalty um, would be given to perpetrators of of sexual crimes, in particular. So I hope that I've answered your question. Okay, so let me ask you something before you answer. Are, are okay. you suggesting? Are you perhaps wondering whether the death penalty would? Uh, have an effect on uh, on crime is that what you're suggesting if it were reintroduced um well my my question comes from two levels firstly um as jocelyn rightly said the right to life is deeply entrenched in our constitution Mm. so is the limitation clause so i respectfully disagree with with jocelyn Mm. and part of the reason why i disagree with her is because i think it would have an effect on the the crime rates or the statistics with relation to gender-based violence and murder. I think that it would go a long way in reducing um, those statistics because any rational person would fear being executed as punishment for raping a child. All right, I see what you're saying. Um, And also, I'm trying to balance the the moral, um, you know, Generally, the the moral standing that if you're going to murder a six week old child, or if you're going to rape a six week old child, do you does your right to life really supersede that child's life uh, right to life? 
excuse me. All right. It's one of those things, yeah. All right, I, see, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I just, I just want to go uh, quickly. You understand that the penalty, death penalty, kicks in only at the penalty stage of the trial. Yes, of yeah. And so before that, you've got arrest, you've got um, uh, informally being charged by the police, which is part of the arrest. You must then appear before the prosecutor, be charged by the prosecutor, plead, and then go on trial and then be convicted. And then only at trial on sentencing will the death penalty actually become a factor. And so if it fails at any of those previous six stages that I mentioned, we're not even going to even take into account the, uh, the death penalty, any penalty for that matter. So uh, are we not now grabbing the tail end of, of, the, of the argument? Is it not the, the, the police, the arrest, since they arrest the, um, the charging, the trial portion that needs to be fixed. If you know that you're going to be, if a criminal knows that they're going to be arrested, charged, prosecuted, convicted, will that not be the deterrent? Because if they're not, if that's not going to happen, they know they're not going to go to jail. It can be on the statute books all it, all they like, but it's not going to deter them if they know they're not going to be caught. What do you say to that? Uh, not necessarily. Look, I I I fully understand um, how the, the criminal justice system works. Um, and I fully understand that there are several steps before we get to a sentencing stage. Mm. Uh, but that's precisely the point. Um, I, I do disagree. I mean, I agree with you to the extent that enforcement and investigations, etc., do need to be fixed. That is definitely something that should be a priority. But at the same time, the fact that you're going to be arrested is not a deterrent right now. Mm. I'll give you a perfect example. The guy from Cape Town who, who murdered his neighbor who went to go buy a lollipop from him and, and she was found a couple of days later. He was on parole. Yeah. He had been arrested. He had been punished. But nothing deterred him from committing the crime again because being arrested and being sent to jail is not a deterrent. Also, our, our prison system is, is, is really broken, as, as you're saying. Right. And maybe instead of dealing with issues of overcrowding, let's remove the problem and remove the person as well. But that's just my, my um, radical view. All right. Well, thank you for okay. that. Um, I don't know if Jocelyn has anything to add to that. Um, I just wanted to, to, to add that, I mean, if we look at countries that do have the, the, the death penalty in force, like Botswana, um, just an, as an example, because it's it's very close to home, you still find people committing crimes that have the consequence of the death penalty. So I would respectfully disagree that it, it, it would be an effective deterrent. We don't have much time now, but thank you for your call. And I suppose that's going to be a running debate for as long as we have a... a um, a very high levels of crime and violence in this country and very low uh, conviction rates as well. It's always going to be on the table and I think we should continue to talk about it. Yeah. But thanks, Cookies. Alrighty. Bye, guys. Bye, Cookies. Um, uh, uh, okay, there was an interesting call by by Goget, so I think that needs a show on its own. Yeah, that's you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but in the meantime, because we really wanted to talk about Jocelyn and her practice as well, you know, and 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 you know her contribution to society. Um, Jocelyn, we don't have much time left, but let's 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 talk about um, you opening your own practice. Yeah. You know, soon after yeah. becoming admitted. Um, be, quickly, be, briefly, yeah, tell us because that's a big, big. It's a huge milestone. It's an amazing yeah, achievement. I mean, Thank you. Uh, yeah. uh, people really get nervous about that. You get very talented yeah. attorneys who simply are just too afraid to step out of getting a, a salary every mm -hmm. month and so on. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that. What made you come to that decision yeah. and, and um, is it worth it? Yeah, 
<laughs> All right. Um, so I opened up my own practice about 15 months after being admi admitted as an attorney. Um, prior to this, I was retained at the firm that I did articles with, and thereafter I decided to accept an in-house position in the corporate space. Um, I am very passionate about um, the practice of law and everything associated with it, including being in court very often. So naturally, my tenure as in-house counsel only lasted three months. <laughs> <laughs> I resigned from the position after being offered a position at a new law firm, which did not work out for me either. And after much introspection, I realized that perhaps my experiences were pushing me into becoming independent. Mm. My experience as an article clerk was um, a very, I had a lot of exposure. So I was thrown deep into the trenches at a very young stage in my legal career. And I think that that's also what has allowed me to enter into my own practice at a very early stage. I've always had very strong leadership skills as well. And as a pervading result, I've always endeavored to have my own business. I didn't expect to have it so soon into my career, but I most certainly think that it happened at the exact point of my readiness to do so. Yeah. Um, I knew that, I mean, the reason I'm saying that is because as early as it was, I took on my responsibilities as a firm owner quite naturally. Um, my experience was aligned with the demands of the role um, I now had to take on. And there was much learning to do and no one should ever conclude their learning. Um, but going out on my own, notwithstanding the inherent difficulties of starting a new business was a, a breath of fresh air for me. Mm, yeah. Certainly. Well, Jocelyn, um, perhaps quickly let, let, let's um, give you the platform to tell us more about your business, how we can contact you, any, anyone who's interested, um, whether you're receiving young graduates um, in, your, in your firm, employing, um, please just give us all this, that information. Okay. Um, so at J. Fember Attorneys, we are attorneys who specialize in family law, in commercial law and in criminal law. Um, the firm was founded on the premise of doing away with the, the traditional system of measuring the value that we as attorneys create by measuring that in billable hours. Our contribution is measured through applying our expertise and skill and we judge our successes based on the, re the results sorry, that we produce for our clients. Um, if your listeners would like to get more information on that, um, they can visit our website at www.fember, that's spelled F-E-M-B-E-R dot C-O dot Z-A. Um, they can also email us at info at fember dot C-O dot Z-A or call us on 066-203-6047. Okay. Um, and just just quickly on the issue of employing graduates, I think that there are obviously many challenges with recruitment because often the person that you see is not the person that you end up with. Um, that can be both positive and negative. Sometimes what you see is what you get, and sometimes what you see is not what you get. So I think that it's it you know it, it it's very difficult because there's this emphasis on academia and not necessarily on skills output and you know there isn't a way to sort of measure the, the skills that law graduates carry but I think that what is important is balance so as much as academics is important I think that um, there need to be practical um, evaluations in place in order to try and see if people think on their feet yeah. um, that balanced with, with good academic results right mm. 
Right. Um, and, 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 Tepo, sorry. You know, she used to be on TV before. Oh, um, yeah. I can believe. I can believe. Yeah, that 16 uh, yeah. year old who started her career like some years ago. Are we ever going to see you in entertainment ever again? Um, you're so versatile. Thank you very much. Um, I was a child actor. Yes. And as much as that was a, you know, a very enriching experience for me and it gave me what I needed, um, I think that, you know, being a legal professional is very demanding. And so ba on that basis alone, um, I don't think that I have the capacity at the moment okay. to stand in queues for auditions and to um, give, you know, the, the entertainment industry the time that it, that it demands. Okay. Having said that, yeah. perhaps I will be the next um, attorney or the next celebrity attorney yes, yes. Wow. in the trial of the century. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yes. That's a possibility. Yeah. That's amazing. All right. I about these guys from uh, was the, the voice of hip hop with Caesar. Listen, man. Just just wait just a minute. Okay, we we're a little bit late today, but it's a really important conversation we're having. We've been talking to Jocelyn Fember of J Fember Attorneys and it's for you. You must really, it's, it's, it's for you because it's very difficult um, to have that sort of, well, I'm still going to proceed, you know, even th things are difficult, I'm struggling to pay my fees, mm -hmm. I might not be respected or I might get pushed back in the legal profession, but you have people like Jocelyn who are here just to show you that, listen, I'm a black lady and it is possible not only to qualify, to open your own firm, to thrive, it's possible. And in fact, we need you. To do it uh, men have been running this country for a long time and look where it has it's gotten us look at where it's yeah, gotten tired. us technical recession number what <laughs> now uh, i think it's our third technical recession that we're in i mean it, things are not really working but you can uh, you don't need to rely on anybody else you can do it whoever it is that you are it is possible okay uh, and 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 the law profession is changing you get more and more faces of Jocelyn when I was there for a uh, at my last um, admission where a friend of mine was admitted eight uh, ladies were admitted and only two guys were admitted and I think four of those ladies were being admitted as conveyances and notaries so the legal profession is changing you can be part of it Thank you for listening. It's been uh, Tapumapi and um, uh, Millicent. Uh, I think Millicent knows the names that she should thank. Yeah. Far yeah. better than Tepo, what I do. Tepo, Tepo um, cheats the system, guys. But I'm going to say, um, you may remember www.fember attorneys indeed.co.za is the website where you can uh, find more information on Jocelyn's law firm and about Jocelyn herself Jocelyn honestly what you're doing is amazing all the best with thank all your you. future endeavors and congratulations thank you very much for having me and I hope that I've inspired your listeners um, perhaps those listening will look at the legal profession with new eyes or perhaps um, decide to join the fraternity definitely definitely from our producer Lerato Makate our technical producer Mike, our law focus researchers, Tepa Mohapi, and myself, Melissa Ndiweni, thank you for tuning into Law Focus tonight. Law Focus Podcast.